All right. Sure. All right. So welcome everyone to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine Banks and myself, Victor Xi, where we host weekly political discussions that are relevant to all generations with experts on issues facing our country today. Um, I'm Victor Xi. I'm going to be um, an incoming freshman at the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, I'm also a delegate for Vice President Joe Biden, and I'm an avid um, advocate for reforming democracy with equal citizens. Um, Jill, I know many of your achievements, but do you mind giving a short synopsis of who you are to everyone listening today? Given how many years I've been working, short is gonna be hard, but uh, I am a graduate of the University of Illinois in journalism, and then went to Columbia Law School, became a criminal federal prosecutor in organized crime, leading to my appointment to be one of the three trial lawyers in the Watergate scandal. And following that, I was general counsel of the U.S. Army, uh, a partner in a law firm in Chicago, deputy attorney general of the state of Illinois, uh, head of the American Bar Association, the chief operating officer for the American Bar Association, and then a corporate officer for Motorola and then Maytag. Uh, currently, I am an MSNBC legal analyst and have the privilege of being able to comment on all the things going on in the world today in terms of uh, legal challenges. And I'm also a proud member of the board of the Better Government Association. And I'm very proud that we have uh, with us two guests from the Better Government Association. So that's basically what I'm doing right now. And then hosting with Victor this intergenerational look at politics today and the legal issues and um, other political issues facing us and like Victor, I am also a Biden delegate. Definitely, thank you, Jill. Um, so before we get into the main topic of today's event, um, I do wanna remind people to ask questions um, after we post this event, either through our Facebook page, um, you can contact uh, myself or Jill on Twitter, or you can um, go to jillwinebanks.com um, forward slash contact to ask any of your questions and we'll be sure to, um, post those later on Facebook or um, in a second podcast. Um, we will also be pushing out a form so you guys can tell us which topic you'd like to see discussed. So Jill, I'll hand it back to you. Okay, well, the first thing I wanna do, of course, is to introduce our speakers today. Uh, we have brought in two really terrific experts in the area of government transparency, uh, the Freedom of Information Act. And we're gonna be talking about how that relates to the current issue of racial justice in America and police violence. And you'll be surprised at how much that tool can be used to help bring about a better result in America. So our first guest is um, David Greising, who is the president and chief executive of the Better Government Association. For nearly a century, the BGA has fought for honest and effective government through investigative journalism and policy advocacy. David's career started at the City News Bureau of Chicago, and along the way, he also worked at the Chicago Sun-Times, Business Week Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, and Reuters. He was a co-founder of the Chicago News Cooperative and worked briefly as a consultant to World Business Chicago. Today, he writes a, a government issues column regularly for the Tribune and for Crane's Chicago Business. He has a great deal of experience to share with us today. Then we also have Matt Topic, who is a media and intellectual property attorney at Lovey & Lovey. He has handled hundreds of Freedom of Information Act cases, including the release of the Laquan McDonald shooting video, records from the Mueller investigation, 
Rahm Emanuel's uh, private emails about public business, and FBI records that helped lead to the exoneration of an innocent man. Matt has trained hundreds of journalists, activists, lawmakers, and concerned citizens on how to use the Freedom of Information Act effectively. And um, by the way, the BGA will be having an updated um, part of our website that will be looking at how people can effectively use FOIA. Um, he's litigated several Open Meetings Act cases, including one that the BGA just brought against Mayor Lightfoot for having meetings uh, by secret, in secret, uh, during the coronavirus epidemic. Uh, Matt has taught intellectual property at Chicago Kent Law, and he's argued before the United States Supreme Court, the Illinois Supreme Court, and many other courts. He's our, the BGA's outside general counsel. And um, before he went to law school, Matt was a professional jazz musician, something I just learned about him and find fascinating. Um, he also is a graduate of my alma mater, the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. So, Victor, why don't you start the conversation? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much, um, David and Matt, again, for being here. Um, we look forward to this conversation. So before we get into that main um, part of the conversation, um, why don't we start with David and then go to Matt. Um, can you guys talk about more uh, about your thoughts on the importance of government transparency and how that relates to um, racial justice? Well, uh, as Jill indicated, uh, the idea of open records and open meetings, they, they sound sort of academic and, and they're really not. They're really all about holding government accountable, about obtaining access to records that oftentimes the government does not want us to uh, see. Sorry about my dog barking in the background. Um, At least it's not but, mine. Uh, yeah, th th this is, uh, it, it, for example, in recent cases in Chicago, um, uh, there was one very high profile one, a coal plant in Chicago had a big smokestack that was brought down in a botched demolition. It sent a cloud of noxious gas all throughout a neighborhood called uh, Little Village in Pilsen, a heavily Hispanic neighborhood in the city of Chicago, um, where uh, many immigrants and people who are not very well off live, and all of a sudden in the midst of COVID, uh, they're dealing with this crisis of this pollution brought into their area. We have sought and obtained a fair number of government records as to what went into the approval of that case. We're still seeking more. We haven't gotten everything that we're looking, looking for. But those records are key to establishing what the city knew and when they knew it and who in the city knew about it. And that is a case where, where health and safety are at risk. And without government records, we never can get to the bottom of who is responsible. So that's just one example of many that we use in our daily work at the BGA in rooting out uh, government accountability. Mm -hmm. Thank you, yeah. Um, Matt? Sure, um, so people of color have been speaking in America about police misconduct for a very long time. And uh, unfortunately, you know, that not a lot was done to address that. And I think uh, a lot of America didn't believe those claims and didn't want to believe that um, the police would do some of the awful things that they've been accused of doing. And we now live in a time where video is ubiquitous and we can see what's happening. I mean, all these events, these tragic, horrible events in which police misconduct 
has resulted in the death or serious injury or uh, just degradation of people of color, those things are now being recorded and we can all see that. And sometimes that's just done by bystanders um, with cell phones, but sometimes that's body cam or dash cam or other uh, government videos. Uh, the Laquan McDonald case uh, is a, an obvious example in Chicago where, but for that video being released, we wouldn't have any of the reform that we're talking about now. And to be sure, there is a very long way to go for the Chicago Police Department to engage in constitutional effective policing in this city. Um, but we're only having that conversation. We only had um, you know, a police officer charged with murder and ultimately convicted because there was video. And that video was only released because there is a statute that says it has to be released. And um, the reason we have these kinds of statutes and we have them federally and we have them all around the country is that this is our government and we pay for it and we have a right to know how it's operating so that we can hold it accountable. Because if we don't have access to information, then we are just left with whatever information elected officials and government choose to give us. And we've seen time and time again that that's not always going to be accurate. And you know, I think that's probably a tremendous understatement at the national level right now. Um, so that, those are the reasons why um, if we're talking about racial justice or any kind of justice or any, any um, issue where we wanna hold government accountable, we have to have access to records in order to do that. Thank you so much. That really tees up, I think, my first question um, and that, is to focus specifically on a recent case that the uh, Better Government Association was involved in, which is the Illinois Supreme Court ruled just last week um, that the Freedom of Information Act basically trumps the uh, contract between the police and the city. And uh, that in order to hold the police accountable, the police, records of misconduct cannot be destroyed. They have to be maintained and they are available under the Freedom of Information Act. So if you could, maybe we can start with you, Matt, and then David, um, you can add to it. Um, I wanna talk a little bit more about the FOIA case that led to this Supreme Court decision and why the win is so important to police accountability at a time when that is a major focus of, of public interest right now. Thanks, Jill. Uh, so to understand kind of how this fits together, uh, let's go back a few years. And in, in uh, around 2010, leading up into 2014, uh, there was a lawsuit or a series of lawsuits attempting to get release of police misconduct records. In Chicago, we call them complaint registers or CRs. So if someone complains that uh, I was harassed, I was abused, my rights were violated by the police, there's a mechanism in Chicago for making a complaint. And then the complaint gets investigated. And unfortunately, historically, uh, those institutions that are supposed to be uh, uh, independently investigating and ensuring that the police are complying with the necessary rules and regulations in the Constitution, those have not been particularly effective systems as the Justice Department later went on um, to find. So these records get created, they're called CR files, and uh, the city of Chicago didn't want to release them. They had a variety of arguments as to why they were not subject to disclosure 
under the Illinois Freedom of Information Act. And then the Illinois Appellate Court ruled in a case called Calvin versus City of Chicago that in fact these are public records and that while there are some pieces of information within them that might be exempt, uh, like the name of a complaining witness or uh, things that would impede an ongoing investigation or certain bits of information like that can be withheld, but otherwise those records have to be released. And so that opened the door to a, a huge amount of transparency into um, historic complaints of misconduct and how those have been investigated and how effective is the system that is supposed to be ensuring that uh, that officers are being held accountable for their actions. So everything's going great for a period of years. The records are being released. Uh, the plaintiff, Jamie Calvin, um, runs an institution called the Invisible Institute, which created an online portal where you can type in an officer's name or badge number and you can see all the complaints, at least all the complaints that they have managed to get their hands on so far, because a lot of them still have just never been requested or never been released. Um, at that point, the Fraternal Order of Police decided that they had an issue with that because under the collective bargaining agreement between the FOP and the city of Chicago, those records are supposed to be destroyed when they are more than four years old. Um, so the city had never done that, uh, in part because judges told them not to do that because these might be relevant to lawsuits and there's statutes that govern it. And there's a whole lot of reasons why that provision had no business ever being in the collective bargaining in the agreement in the first place. But even though it was that the, the government can't bargain away the public's right to information that they're otherwise entitled to. And so the, the, the city, to its credit, um, took the position that they're not going to destroy uh, these records. The FOP initiated an arbitration under the collective bargaining agreement um, and an arbitrator ruled that it, the provision was enforceable and that the parties had to confer about how that was all going to go. Um, so then the city filed suit to challenge um, and it makes its way all the way up to the Illinois Supreme Court who recently held that there is a clear public policy in Illinois is uh, evidenced by a number of transparency and record retention statutes in favor of protection of government records, which are properly the property of all of us as the public and not merely of the government itself. And so what the Supreme Court held was that um, no collective bargaining agreement and no arbitration award is enforceable if it violates a clear public policy. And the court found that in fact, and this shouldn't be surprising to us, uh, that there is a clear public policy in favor of the maintenance and release of records about police misconduct for all those reasons I had spoken about. So uh, this is a huge, tremendous victory for uh, the citizens of the state of Illinois and people who are interested in police reform and in, in any other sort of government activity because it reaffirms that um, a collective bargaining agreement cannot be used to get around what a statute says or what clear public policy is. Thank you. And so does it also help with creating an ability to develop uh, pattern and practice cases if you have the older records? Maybe, uh, David, you want to take it from there? Um, and, and as you can see, the questions that I'm asking are based on law and my experience as a lawyer. Uh, and then we're going to get to questions that would be more of interest possibly to a younger generation, to um, people just entering college, just finishing high school. Well, great, Jill. And, and it is a matter of law that that's important. And, and Matt talked about the primacy of uh, of the law over this private contract between the union, the fraternal order of police, and 
the, the um, city of Chicago. Uh, pattern and practice is really important as a matter of law, but it's also important uh, when it comes to high profile cases uh, that um, uh, we as, as journalists, as investigators, uh, if there's an incident in which a cop is involved, it's really helpful to know what that police person's history has been over not just the last four years, but over the course of that person's career. And on a broader basis, it's important to be able to establish pattern practice across the, the, the entire department of the Chicago police, police force. Uh, the city of Chicago police force right now is in a federal consent decree by which they are obligated to maintain certain progress toward better policing. And if those records had been established or had been destroyed, let's say, um, we would have no way of knowing the long history of poor policing that has led us to the present moment. And the ability of the police, the police force to reform itself would be compromised by the fact that uh, many, many years of bad conduct could have been wiped out uh, by um, the enforcement of this private contract between the union and the city. And in Chicago, there are some legendary bad cases, bad actors. Uh, 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 police Lieutenant uh, John Burge ran a house of horrors in which police systematically uh, tortured uh, uh, people who had brought in uh, on spurious circumstances oftentimes. That torture is something right out of a horrible spy novel. Car batteries and all kinds of bad things were happening. And while that happened a long time ago, some of the cops who were involved in some of that still are on the force. And, and so we need to know that those long records in order to hold people accountable over a longer period of time and to hold the department accountable for its record as a police force per se. And, and so um, you talked a little bit about kind of Victor and, and the younger generation. This is the kind of activity that has brought thousands of people out on the streets across this country and around this world. As they become familiar with these records that we see in police forces across the country, the Minneapolis case, the George Floyd murder, was not an isolated incident. It there were problems in the Minneapolis police force over many years, and one of the reasons, besides the fact that eight and a half minutes plus of George Floyd dying before our very eyes resonated so much, was because the people of Minneapolis have suffered under the powers of a police force that had many rogue elements in it that were not uh, tamped down over time. And so the only way to really hold police forces accountable is by having these records over a longer period of time. Yeah, definitely. It's it's obvious that um, the government needs to be transparent, not only when it comes to police reform, but also on all levels of government, which brings us into our next question. Um, BJ sued the city for these secret meetings, and um, the mayor's office shortly after responded that they would discontinue these secret meetings. Um, so I guess we can start with David and then go to Matt. Um, could you talk first about some of the background of the lawsuit, as well as um, why this reversal from the mayor's office is so significant in terms of government transparency. Right. Um, mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, is a former BGA member, we, sh we should say. She has good government pedigree. She was responsible for uh, the Chicago Police Board, which is really an oversight uh, agency that looks into issues like we've been talking about today. So we have in this instance, a mayor who came into office as a reformer, and yet under the pressure of COVID and the response to COVID, she has started to assume some 
significant powers. She initially sought to uh, suspend enforcement of the Freedom of Information Act for the length of the COVID crisis. And she backed as an effort in the state legislature to do that through, through, um, through a state law, which ultimately we and, and others fought to defeat and successfully did defeat. As regards the council meetings, she has held several meetings, we're aware of at least three, in the, which were held during the height of the George Floyd protests and, and aftermath, in which she met with the entire city council to discuss uh, the city's response to the protests and the, uh, the civil disturbances that were associated with those protests. Those meetings are illegal under the Open Meetings Act in the state of Illinois. Whenever a half of a quorum of a public body meets, we as the public have a right to advance notice, we have a right to comment, we have a right to attend, and we have, a, we have a right to access to any records that are produced as a result of that meeting. None of those things happened in at least three instances. And so we felt that in order to uh, set uh, the, you know, hold the city accountable for these illegal meetings, that we needed to go to court and let them know that this could not continue to happen. I'll let Matt uh, handle the, the, your part about kind of where things stand and how important the city's concession is because he's the lawyer and he knows the law on this a lot better than I do. Uh, sure, always happy to talk about that. So um, what the city is claiming is that uh, you know, these were emergency meetings and that under the circumstances they, you know, they had to hold them in the way that they held them. And um, that just simply isn't what the law says. The Open Meetings Act requires that meetings be held in the open and the public have uh, have access to those meetings for the same reason that we have access to public records. Now there are a number of exceptions where the government can go into what's called a closed session or an executive session, but they have to start in an open session, they have to explain why they're going into closed session, and when they go into closed session they have to keep a verbatim recording of what they're all talking about so that somebody can check that later if they're challenged to see if they if they if they limited themselves to discussing the things that they said they were going to discuss in closed session and for which there is a basis because there's a long history and 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 inclination by a lot of government officials to maybe they go into closed session to talk about one thing maybe it's you know a pending disciplinary matter about an employee and then the conversation starts to shift start talking about things that are supposed to be spoken about um, in public. And so uh, the city saying uh, this is an emergency and this is why we did this, this the, provision, the statute has provisions for emergency meetings that the city did not follow, would not have allowed them to do what they've done here. And they've also tried to argue that uh, because they weren't voting on anything, uh, that it, it wasn't the kind of meeting that required openness. That is complete nonsense because the Open Meetings Act applies if a majority of a quorum is present. And for those who don't know Robert's rules of order and all those kinds of things, a quorum is basically one more than a majority. Okay, so you that's what you need in order to have a meeting. If you have a quorum, then you can have a meeting and then you can take action. And if you don't have a quorum, you can't do that. Well, the, stat, the statute says if a majority of a quorum is meeting to discuss public business, discuss public business, not vote on public business, discuss public business, then the public has a right to be present for that. The reason for a majority of a quorum is that is, if the circumstances aligned just right, that if they voted as a block, they could pass something. And so the idea that there has to be a vote makes no sense because the majority of a quorum can't vote. There has to be a quorum before they can vote. I appreciate and apologize for the little digression into like 
very loyally aspects of these things. But at the end of the day, the point is that um, we have a right to know what happened in those meetings. And while we're glad that the city said they're going to stop, they said they could start again anytime if they, it's what they believe they want to do. And very importantly, we think there's recordings of these meetings. We know there's a recording that was made by one of the aldermen. The mayor was very angry publicly at the alderman for recording the meeting and saying that it was illegal when in fact that, that recording may have saved the city from an additional violation because they at least had a recording of the meeting. So if there are recordings of these other meetings, we want them and we want them released. And that is a remedy that is available under the Open Meetings Act. So even if we couldn't be present when they were talking about it, we can now hear, you know, afterwards what they had to say. I tend to think what they said when they thought no one was listening might be more telling and and sort of honest and open about our government than if the meeting had been fully open in the first place. So, uh, so we're proceeding on that, and the city has indicated they're going to fight, and we'll fight back. And you know, hopefully, um, and I'm pretty confident uh, we will ultimately prevail. The last thing I'll say is this is the same city council that for years and years and years was violating the requirement that there be public comment at all city council meetings. So all public bodies, when they have these open meetings, they have to allow for public comment. They have to sit there and listen while we say what we think about what they're doing or what they're not doing. A lot of public officials don't really like that. The city had for a year had never complied with that uh, until I, I was involved in a lawsuit that forced them to start doing that. And even that took some litigation. So it's not an entity that has a terrific history with complying with the Open Meetings Act. And uh, you know, we look forward to having these tapes released and having a court definitively rule that they're not allowed to do. If, if I could just add one more thing. Um, first of all, the meeting Matt referred to, the May 31st meeting, that was one in which uh, a couple of the aldermen took the mayor to task for the city's response to the George Floyd disturbances. And things got very vulgar, very heated. We need to know that information. The public has a compelling interest in knowing what all went on and specifically what the aldermen were holding the mayor accountable for that the mayor may or may not have been doing. Secondly, the city has said, well, these were informational meetings, no votes were taken. There's nothing in the law that carves out an exception for so-called informational meetings. As Matt says, any time that group meets, we as the public have an interest in what they have to say, whether a vote is taken or not. And so if people hear kind of these dodges like, well, it was only an informational meeting. There is nothing under the law that says that's any different than an official business meeting where they take votes and there's an agenda and all the other things that one would expect when the city council convenes. What's interesting, um, I, thank you both for these great answers, but it was sort of the um, vulgarity that led to it getting public attention. You had an alderman calling the mayor by a name and then mayor responding equally um, in vivid language. And um, I think this is something that certainly the younger generation understands more than my generation, where now everything is available by video. Everyone has a camera. Everybody has a cell phone, which will record videos. That's what led to the George Floyd uh, episode, because it was recorded and we could see it happen. That's what happened with Laquan McDonald because of body cams on the police officers that allowed us to see them murdering him, shooting him in the back 16 times as he was walking away, not threatening them. Um, so it, this is newer to my generation. I wanna make sure that we keep our focus on the perspective of both um, those 
who have grown up always owning a cell phone and always knowing they could record what they were eating or what they were seeing and what that means to their role as public citizens. And, you know, I as a 60s activist who is still politically active to this day and will forever be, um, I, I am seeing the benefits of modern technology. Uh, that comes so naturally to others. But I, I, I want to still focus on the importance of transparency and why it matters. And Matt, you may have actually hit on it in part because the recording of this secret meeting when no one was, you know, when the participants thought no one was listening, they may speak more openly. This relates to even uh, President Trump's claims of total immunity uh, or the more realistic thing which actually exists as opposed to total immunity, which doesn't, um, is the idea of executive privilege is you can have certain conversations that are protected, but not all conversations are, and why this is important. So if, if you can both address a little bit about the importance of it for my generation and for Victor's generation. Uh, sure. I, I think we've all seen to the point where it, any, any view to the contrary would seem really naive. Uh, is that a lot of times government officials tell us one thing in public and behind closed doors, they're telling us something different. And so transparency laws are kind of built on the premise that a government press release is what the government wants you to think or what they, what they want to tell you is that happened. And FOIA and Open Meetings Act, are the, especially FOIA, are the tools that you can use to know as best as possible what's actually going on? What are people really saying behind closed doors? Is the government saying one thing in public and something else in private? And I think that has become, and it's probably always been a problem. I think it's been more and more exposed, but sadly, I think that leads to people sometimes disengaging from the process or feeling like, what's the point? They just lie to us all the time anyway. Um, you know, why do I even care? And I think we've seen through litigation through other things that if you push to get government records released it's you're going to succeed sometimes and you're going to find things that are not what the government was saying like Juan mcdonald was not lunging at anyone with a knife and it should be very alarming to people that all those police officers on the scene were all willing to lie and say that happened even though they knew there was a video of what happened it's not like they didn't know they knew there was a video, but they yet felt so secure in kind of the code of silence that they could lie and felt like it would never matter. And, or maybe they knew, maybe they were, maybe they thought it will come out, but they were so afraid because of the code of silence to even say anything. And so uh, I think transparency is important because it kind of can regulate that and it can give us a, a better ability to know what the government is up to. And I've had the honor and pleasure of representing a lot of young people who are very technologically savvy, very politically um, involved, who are jumping all over using FOIA to um, get to the bottom of some really, really interesting things. We haven't really even talked about, you know, digging into government data and what you can find from taking a deep dive into government databases and, and what kind of things you can see that aren't that, that haven't been reported or aren't being covered. And, um, you know, it has really made it uh, a lot easier for people to, to do those kinds of things. 
I guess what I would add to that is um, going back to this case I mentioned in Little Village. Um, uh, what we've talked about today is, is a lot about what what people like Matt and like the BGA do, you know, professionally. We uh, we do a lot of FOIA work. We we hold government officials accountable for open meetings, et cetera. Uh, but people, besides the videos that they can take, people can use the same tools that we use. These are not the BGA's tools. These are public public's tools. And in Little Village, there's a group called the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. Uh, El Bejo is what they're called uh, colloquially. And, and they have been responsible by, by getting public records about environmental degradation in that area. They are responsible for the shutdown of this coal plant that ultimately resulted in the coal, the smokestack being brought down and causing all these, these issues in that community. But the reason that coal plant is no longer operating is that a, 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 a civil group, a, a community group got together and dug up all kinds of records about the impact that that coal plant was having on air quality and soil quality in their community. And it wasn't through the, you know, the BGA or the Chicago Tribune or anybody else uh, that this coal plant was shut down. It was through pressure that was brought by a community group that used the tools of open government and open records in order to uh, hold the uh, city accountable for its regulation of this coal plant. And, and so um, these are really, really powerful tools and anybody can use them. And it doesn't take that much sophistication. You basically need to be able to write a letter and ask for information. And, and Matt can tell you there are certain exclusions that apply, et cetera. You've got you to be sort of narrow in what you ask for. You've got to really know what you're asking for. But it doesn't take very long before people who are not necessarily professional journalists are able to do some really important work that can have impact on their communities. I, I, I want to point everybody to the BGA website, which does have a section now on how to use FOIA uh, that is good background. It's not as um, dynamic as we want it to be, and BGA is currently working on revising it. So use it now because it does have the basic information that you need. But come back, uh, David, how soon do you think we might have the updated segment on the uh, website? Yet this summer, we hope we're going to be able to get that updated. Yeah, and it's bettergov.org. Uh, bettergov.org is our website. Perfect. Thank you. Victor? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so from a younger person's perspective, um, I feel like there's a real hunger within the younger generation demanding racial justice and equality after um, really the devastating killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, and countless other black lives. And what I find so inspiring is that many of these protests aren't just hosted by college students anymore, but by high school students. So um, that generation is shifting for the better. Um, so for all of our young folks out there who are demanding change either on the streets or on social media, um, can you both talk about why government transparency and accountability for police officers and um, for government is not only a critical first step to achieving racial justice and equality in the short term, but also um, for the long term? Well, I think to have responsive government and um, government that complies with the Constitution and you know respects all of its citizens and all of its people. Um, they they have to know that we're watching and that we're going to hold them accountable. And the first step is just knowing what's going on. I mean, I, I I'm so, become somewhat cynical, fairly cynical about 
government, but I know this about elected officials. They want to win re-election. And I know this about people who aren't currently government officials, but want to be, they want to win those elections. And if they know what we want and we're demanding what we want, the one thing in democracy that I think you can usually pretty well count on is that if there is enough public demand in some, you know, maybe I should walk it back a little bit, but uh, if there's enough public demand, then then elected officials acting in their own self-interest will do the thing that we want them to do. I mean, I think that's what we saw with Laquan is um, in the wake of the video being released, the city promised to re to reform all kinds of things and, and they changed, they did change policies. I mean, they did do a lot of things that were good things and there's, there is still more to be done and the risk becomes is, you know, you have a big moment and there's a lot of attention on things and then you have to sustain that if you want there to be change. I mean, we're having discussions right now in this country that are that we've been having for a while that just kind of build and build and build as they should um, about what do we need to do in order to have a police force that is constitutional and that respects all people and that and that does what we need and want it to do. And the more we know about what's going on, the more we know about what's worked or what hasn't worked, the more we know the data on what's actually happening, the more we know the infrequency with which officers are disciplined even after they have racked up dozens of complaints when the vast majority of officers go their entire career with none. You know, the more we know about those things, then the, the more we as people can hold the government accountable and demand that it change how it's acting. Yeah. yeah. As regards to young people, Victor, um, you know, we 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 are seeing a new era where the young younger people are quite confident in finding their voices. Um, you know, really, I, I think for a lot of people, the turning point was probably the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, and the way that right. the student at that high school in Florida really uh, took the stage and demanded accountability, and of course, the fight for. Uh, you know, controlling handguns and, and assault rifles, et cetera, is a long, hard fight with no clear victory, no clear path to victory. But that the, the young people who were, survived that horrible incident really uh, have focused a lot of attention and held uh, government officials to account over an extended period of time, and they're still in that fight now. And and so the, the real question will be, as, as Matt indicates, what is their staying power in this fight? How interested do they remain, say, when school resumes, if it does in some sort of normal way, if you actually get to go to UCLA, you know, out in California, um, you know, or do you stay in the fight there or do you get distracted by kind of your day-to-day -day, uh, lives? Because uh, government officials rely on us getting bored and going on with our lives. Uh, they don't easily kind of roll over just because people, even after this extended period of protests we've seen so far this late spring and early summer, um, that if that doesn't keep up, then things won't change that much. If it keeps up, then they maybe will. One other thing that young people have going for them is their access to understanding of an implicit uh, sophistication with uh, technology. Uh, we saw that with the Trump rally in Tulsa. If the reports right. are true that young people, <laughs> by signing up in the, among the thousands of people that they kept Trump people from going into that arena and uh, a bad show for Trump, I'm sure you two as Biden delegates uh, got a kick out of that. Uh, that's the sort of punking that 
somebody my age or Matt's age or Jill's age might not have thought of, but somebody your age probably <laughs> did. Mm -hmm. And um, and on either side of the political divide, young people can be active in ways that others might not anticipate. And so there absolutely is a role for young people to play uh, with these tools and with holding their government accountable for sure. Yeah, and that always, you know, like civic engagement, I think always reminds me of um, one of my favorite Lincoln quotes, which is um, public sentiment is everything with it. Nothing can fail against it. Nothing can succeed. So I think it's up to all of us to really make our voices heard. And I think um, right now is obviously that watershed moment for us to make our voices heard. So um, I'll hand it back off to Jill um, to conclude this wonderful discussion. Thank you both for what was a great discussion. And thank you, Victor, for uh, being part of this. I know that Victor for sure is going to be one of those people who stays involved for the rest of his life and will accomplish much. I have no doubt of that. And I think both of you really raised points that are interesting. And um, so let me reflect back. So Matt, you talked about public protest. And during Watergate, that's what made a big difference. Richard Nixon was stonewalling. He would not give us any information. He wouldn't turn over the tapes. And there was so much public protest that he had to do a U-turn and say, okay, I'm gonna give you the tapes. I'm gonna appoint a new special prosecutor. This is after he had fired Archie Cox in the Saturday Night Massacre. That's important. And then David, you talked about basically, we don't get things done today. It's going to take time and we need to stay focused on this. America deserves racial justice. We need government transparency and enforcement of the FOIA in order to get that and OMA, the Open Meetings Act and the Freedom of Information Act in order to achieve those goals. And I hope that the intense interest that we have now will continue until things are actually done. There are some quick fixes that can be done for improving policing and the relationship between the police and the community. But there are some long-term systemic problems that are going to take serious study and time. Um, my generation in the 60s thought we had solved everything. When the uh, Civil Rights Act passed, when the Voting Rights Act passed, when the Vietnam War was ended, and we did accomplish a lot. But obviously we aren't very far along or not as far along as I would have thought we would be all these years later. And I hope that today's discussion will encourage people of both generations and of everybody in between to stay involved. Um, I think the uh, President Obama said at a Chicago Economic Club meeting in answer to what we could do, he said, you have to be informed, you have to be involved and you have to get out the vote. And so I wanna to end today's session with that thought, uh, combined with Lincoln's quote from Victor and the great comments from Matt Topic and David Greising, um, both sort of representing the Better Government Association of Chicago, bettergov.org. And I hope all of you will send us questions that you would like us to address in future episodes and questions for Matt and David who will hopefully come back to answer them uh, in a second podcast, uh, or at least answer them online for you. So great that you joined us. Hope we'll see you again at our next episode. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks.